Hello and welcome to Eat or No Lit. My name is Nick Argyris, and this week I'm looking for some of the best books from 2023 to help me are two best of high the school best teachers. teachers from yeah. high school is from in best 2023. Yeah, Ian and Joe. Yeah, see, Nick, it's hard when you ask us to bring like the best book of 2023 because the problem is is that we That's read your, other books all too year bad. long. So your how job. would we? This is how your would job. No, this so, is your job, Joe. Okay. Well, I read a bu- I read a bunch of year end lists. <laughs> I read a bunch of year end lists, and a book that kept coming up is a book called In the Country of the Blind by Andrew oh. Leland. I don't know if it's the best book of 2023, but I thought it was really, really good. I read okay. it today. Hello, my name is Dr. Ian DeYoung. I'm a high school English teacher, and this week for best books of 23, which I'm not going to go into how arbitrary that is. I brought a book called I brought a book <laughs> called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. It was a New York New York Review of Books essay that got turned into a book and a bunch of different year-end lists said read this book. So it's I did. A good and I book. I would agree it is a it is a banger. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> There's a there's a local reporter um, who is also a poet. So she writes for like our local kind of conglomerate new- newspaper, our small branch. But then she like when you look her up, she also has like published poetry and stuff. And hmm. on Twitter, she is extremely extremely active. And towards the end of the year, she went on a eh, I don't know if rant is the right word, but she kept oh, nice. posting things like. If your end of year list, like best book list, doesn't include poetry, you look stupid. Like you look uh, like an idiot. And uh, yeah. yeah. You know what I was thinking, Joe, as you were mm-hmm. talking? Was more I'm like, poetry. I'm like, oh, poetry is so boring. But Nick, stay positive. Don't be like the guy who's like, poetry stupid. I, and then you got the to thing. the end and I'm like, man, she deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> I think poetry is one of those things. I think poetry can be a little bit inaccessible sometimes. But boy, when you find a poem that hits you. It's, it's, it's yeah, I it's, totally it's get magic, it. man. To, yeah. to this point, because I know we have we, we I know we have people who listen to this podcast who are poetry fans. Um, I was looking at these year end lists, and I was like, you know, if I were a big brave boy and I didn't care what Nick thought, right. I would just bring one of these collections of poetry because some of them look really good. And you could have done that, yeah. So Nick's the problem, Nick. But I I knew what would ha- I knew what would happen. Me. Nick would look at me with this kind of way of like. What are you doing? Right. How dare you? Where are the pictures? Mm-hmm. Where are the pictures? Yes. Well, to be fair, poetry books have a lot of room for pictures in them. There is a and lot of white space in poetry books. Very infrequently to make advantage, take advantage of that room. I think that white space is the most intimidating part of the poetry. Sure. It's like... Because that's where you're supposed to do the thinking. <laughs> the uh, the audacity of leaving yep. that much room on paper. Yep. It's... Waste. It's, it's honestly, paper waste. It's, yeah. It's not sustainable. And it's, yeah. it's anti-planet. Is yep. what I think it is. Poets are anti-planet. <laughs> yeah, poets hate so. the earth. <laughs> they hate the earth. They hate poets, the earth. Poets, if you're listening, you we we think with your white space specifically, Nick. And let's let's talk about let's let's talk about white space. Why does it have to be white space? Why can't it be colored? Uh, per- nope. <laughs> 
Hey, Joe. Uh, yeah. So uh, who said this is the best book of last year? Where'd you guys get your recommendations from? Did these make lists? Yeah, I think the New Yorker was one of mine. Um, I can actually Ooh, look and check. Good. I don't know offhand, but it was very fancy places. Um, one was, oh, one second. Listen to listen to this list. It made the How final many? best yeah. of list at the New Yorker, the New York Times Review of Books, and Publishers Weekly. Who wrote all those articles? Was it the uh, same guy? And by the way, this other book is awesome. Yeah. Lead editor. Ian? Same. Um, more same more or less. I think I think mine mine cropped up in like places like LitHub too. Um yeah. Teen Vogue. Not in Teen Vogue. Tween Vogue. Obviously, Tween Vogue here is doing a, a big a big bump. Well, welcome, Lit Heads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, as we call it, strongly podcast, where every week we pick two book recommendations to bring to you, and and we pick a winner. Gentlemen, some rules to keep you on track. Rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers. Rule number two, omit needless words. Joe, any mm-hmm. any stories you want to? No, I'm, I'm working on it. It's 2024. New, new year, new Joe. Oh, really? New Year. For, I'll well, believe that no, I, I see it. I've, I've, the, the reality is, is that as this show goes on, I actually just have fewer stories. He's running out. Oh, I've used most of them You're using them all point. up. That's the problem with teaching is every semester I get like a new audience um, and, and I can just reuse. So, Gotcha. I'll recycle Joe. Rule number three, <laughs> only winning matters. Joe, what's your book about? Andrew Leland grew up with full vision, but starting in his teenage years, his sight began to degrade from the outside in. Now, he sees the world through a narrow tube. Soon, he'll have no vision left. He's full of apprehension, but also curiosity. He embarks on a sweeping exploration of the state of being that awaits not only the physical experience of blindness, but its language, its politics, its customs. He is going blind, and he wants to figure out What's that going to be like? Uh, this book is nonfiction. It's a fact. It is part memoir. It is part historical and cultural investigation. It is Leland's determination not just to survive his transition, but to thrive. 400 pages long and listed as one of the best books of the year by a whole bunch of publications. I think going blind might be my biggest fear. Oh. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... We can get into it, but it's something that he talks at length about. He's like, hey, human beings, we've got all these senses, but one of them matters a Man. whole bunch more than some they of the others. They are all super critical senses, huh? <laughs> There's not um, one here that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Ian. So, <laughs> yeah, Ian. I, have th- I have thoughts about that, but we can talk about my book instead. Ian, what's your book about? In 2012, a school bus full of kindergartners crashes, crashed, oh and gosh. caught fire. Jesus. In Israel's West Bank region, little children suffered and died. When you hear about stuff like this, the natural response is, how can such a thing happen? And in this book, A Day in, in the Life of Abed Salama, Nathan Thrall, who is an expert on Israeli-Palestine relations, answers that question, how can such a thing happen? Exhaustively, in more detail than you thought you knew. By the end of the book... You're not really asking, how could this happen anymore? You're asking, how often has this happened before? And when is this going to happen next? Ian's right, kicking off 2024 with a big doubt. You don't I, know Lit finally takes on uh, the Israeli-Palestine conflict. <laughs> I, there, there was a lot with this book. I was like, I got into it and I was like, 
Well, I can't put this. It feels like wrong to say, I can't do this. Um, but it's it is man it is a lot oh my god <sighs> uh let's definitely start with joe let's <laughs> end on a high note my book the country of the blind is on a bunch of end of year this is the best book of the year list um mm-hmm. andrew leland a little bit of background on him he is a writer and kind of media guy. He's uh, had writing appear in the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, McSweeney's, like kind of all the the places that you would want to put on your resume of places that you have published uh, writing. He's also been hosting a podcast since like 2000 and it was really early. It was like it was like 2005 or something like early for podcasts. Um, and he's been involved with things like Radiolab, 99% Invisible, like those big players in the field i've never heard of him yep same um well he's never heard of you either (laughs) (laughs) right 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 it's a big world out there it's a big world there's a lot of people to know so he's a big heavy hitter is what you're saying joe well he's he's been in the space i won't say so much that he's a heavy hitter as much as like he's he's been in the space he's gone to bat He's, he's gone to bat. That's For right. Sure. He's, he's yeah. hit a couple of doubles, etc. Let's stick with the baseball metaphors yeah, today. baseball metaphors all the way through. Um, Love those. Bunt he, single. Bunt single. Thank you, Ian. You're welcome. He's going blind. He's been going blind his whole life. Like um, when he was a, a teenager, he was diagnosed with a condition that basically is like, hey, the backs of your eyes are slowly dying and they are going to slowly die for the next X amount of years. Hard Hmm. to say how long and eventually you won't be able to see at all. This would bum you out as you could imagine, but for a long time it didn't really affect him that much. It was just kind of like this fact about his life that was like, Oh right. Someday I'm going to be losing all of my vision. Kind of Working in the background, background yeah, process. working in the background, and then he gets to thirty. Um, you oh, know, everything you, bad happens at thirty. Hey, uh, I just want to stop. <laughs> Literally and say, everything to your body. <laughs> I just want to stop and say I'm coming up on a birthday real soon. And is so, it thirty, Ian? It's no, it's not. It's actually after that a little bit. But the um, <laughs> the the thoughts of the thoughts of mortality and my body breaking uh-huh. down are very live for me. This is going to be a good yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know the name of the disease? I'm just curious. Is this something we've ever heard of? Is this extremely rare? I had never heard of it before. He says it a million billion times in the book, and I can't come up with it for the life of me. Happy birthday. Not really. He's 30 now. Yeah, he gets to be 30 years old, and all of a sudden, the stuff that used to be pretty easy for him um, isn't anymore. Uh, His his wife needs to help him navigate dark spaces, like if they go to a bar or a club at night or something like that. um, Mm. He he needs his hand on her shoulder. He suddenly has a hard time seeing things uh, in his periphery, right? Like his, his... his, so you're saying his blindness closes in from the outside. Yes. It's like a it's like a horror movie, you know? It's like it's not the monster doesn't jump on screen in minute 3. It it gradually oh, gradually gradual. creeps up on him. The zombies are walking, Oof. not running. And because he's a writer, because he's a, a a media guy, because he's a person who intellectually deals with things, he kind of has this moment of being like I'm going to be blind and I really need to figure out like what that 
means, like what that is. And this is the book that he writes kind of as a result of it. He actually initially pitches it to, um, uh, it, it kind of sounds like he pitches it to like uh, Radio Lab or he pitches it to This American Life, something like that. Um, he pitches it to them. It starts as an idea and a script for a podcast, and it just grows and grows and grows until he has this 400-page book that interleaves on one hand this is my personal experience and a memoir of what it feels like to slowly lose your sight over your entire remembered life. Also, though, let me tell you about the history of like blindness. Like, let me tell you the history of like what how blindness has been treated throughout Western history. Um, hmm. Let me tell you about like the Americans with Disability Acts. Let me tell you about like blind revolutionaries in the '60s who would like sneak out and commit acts of um, what do they call it? Like guerrilla accessibility. <laughs> oh, awesome! Gor- um, That's so cool. Guerrilla ability. Guerrilla ability. Right, and it ends up being this really kind of textured and layered book that yes follows his own personal journey as he can as he as his eyesight gets worse and worse and worse but also like tells us about the history of blindness and comes away with some pretty strong opinions on what it means to be blind let me guess Mm -hmm. those are not like sunshine and roses well I bet I bet it's more positive than you think, Ian. Is it like is it like reassuring or encouraging or is it kind of calling a society on the carpet? It's 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 complicated. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's complicated, right? Like, of so course. It, it, Some of the best books of the year. Summarize it in a sentence, Joe. His life, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's super complicated. He kind of talks about um, actually early in this book, he talks about these two warring factions of advocacy groups for the blind, right? On one hand, you have this advocacy group for the blind that is that was essentially the, their thesis, I guess, is kind of like blindness is a super serious disability. The world is absolutely not built for blind people. Blind people need help built into the world to help mm-hmm. them navigate the world, right? Okay. On the other hand, you have a faction that uh, for uh, an advocacy group for the blind, that thesis is basically like, that is bullshit. Being blind is not a serious disability. Blind people are incredibly capable on their right. own. Right. 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 Um, right. And we don't need you holding their hands throughout. And yep. like, who does that hurt, though? Isn't <clears throat> who does that hurt? I'm like, isn't that just like, well, these things are there for the people that maybe do need it. <laughs> It, it hurts. So they're not talking about like, don't have, you know, curbs, don't have crosswalks, right? That's not what they're what talking, are we talking about, about, about then. Yeah. They're talking about like, hey, we need you to expect, uh, we need you to expect that blind people can achieve at the same level right. as everyone else. We need you An to attitude. expect that blind people can be like functional, fully right. like cogent members right. of society. Um, and when talking about the history of the blind, he tells a, a few kind of heartbreaking things. In the '60s, when we had like these grilla, these grilla, what did we call it before? Grilla. It, it was to, we combined it, it accessibility. Uh, really Cor- good. Yeah, grillability. Yeah, these grillabilitists uh, coming around. A common thread that they all had, like they're all students at like Berkeley or something like that. And a common thread that they all had is people were like, hey, you're going to go to college? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm super smart and capable. And they're like, 
I don't think you should go to college. I think you're just going to get educated to set yourself up for a life of disappointment. And these are like other blind people telling this. They're like, hey, it's there's nothing out there for you, man. Like, like, don't frickin bother, Hmm. essentially. Is that Um, I mean, so that's a different world. The 60s, right? It's nearly 200 200 years ago. So, yes, we're talking about the 1760s. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that but that you're just saying that that was the mindset of this time to some degree. That was like the it was a totally pervasive mindset. Um, He talks about how even now when um, women go in for their they're going to have a baby. They have an ultrasound. They get a test. They're that's pregnant. like, is, is the baby healthy? Yep. That's what it's called. <laughs> uh, they, have, they have the, is the baby healthy test? If they suspect uh, that the baby will be born blind or be born with the condition that he has, like some women abort that child. And he's like, yeah. that's insane. Like I have mm. that thing and my life is like fully realized. And I'm, yeah. a, you know, like I'm, capable and i mean as somebody who becomes blind Mm -hmm. you know halfway through their life that's a very different experience than i'm sure to have and lose blind people who were born blind or happened earlier in their life i feel like there's a difference too between like so like you got the three you've got people born blind you've got people who sort of like are catastrophically suddenly unexpectedly blind like you're in a car accident or something and then there's there's this where he's like there, there will be a point where you're like, I can't see those mountains in the distance as clearly as I like. I remember what it was and I can no longer, but I can still see the faces of my loved ones up, up close. Yeah, this, this is something he gets goes into at kind of considerable length. It's probably what the whole book's about. Yeah, like at considerable length. <laughs> nice. he's, he's like, he's like, my journey into blindness has kind of felt like my entire life. Like I'm walking into a pool from the shallow end. Like each, each day I get a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. And someday I'm going to be immersed. Like someday I'm going to be totally immersed. And then there's this weird, like imposter syndrome stuff where all of a sudden, like he, at a certain point has to start using a cane. Right. Like he takes that cane that he's been Mm, carrying around and uh he starts using it and he's like, but I feel like an asshole because like I use a cane in the street. But also when you speak to me, I clearly have vision, you know, like, you know, like people, people think I'm faking or something like that. Right. Um, He talks about like the toll that it has on his relationship with his wife when he starts doing things like using a cane for the first time and how while she intellectually obviously understood that this degeneration is happening to him. The first time he pulled out a cane in the street and started walking, she had like kind of a really uh, visceral reaction to it. Like got kind of unexplained, uh, angry in an unexplained way with him and, and kind of the emotional. Oh, well, she sounds terrible. Wow. <laughs> no, it sounds very sympathetic. Okay, maybe the, there's block, a yes. more ro- ro- rounded version of her in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and then she hit me. Uh, <laughs> The path that Andrew Leland lands on is the path of kind of self-advocacy. Essentially, I am going to train myself to be a hyper-capable blind person that can fit in with the world, Mm -hmm. right? Yes, I'm going to obviously use assistive technologies. Yes, I'm going to use a cane. Yes, I'm going to use the audio features and have my computer read the stuff on the screen to me, but also like 
I will not be I will not be expecting accommodations to be made for me beyond like a recognition of kind of the pain and the challenge that I'm going through, etc. Some people go blind suddenly. Some people are born blind. Andrew Leland has like 25 years to kind of prepare to be blind. And a lot of what this book is, is him training himself, going to camps or things like that, training himself to do things like read Braille or cook dinners while being totally blind. At one point, mm-hmm. he goes to a... Do you ever do uh, that? Do you ever just close your eyes and see if you could like walk through your house without running into a wall? No. Anybody ever do? Maybe that's because my biggest fear, but I have done that before. <laughs> Nick is prepared. <laughs> yeah, well, at one point, he goes to a, a camp, I guess I would call it, like, like a center in Colorado sure. that is built for this exact thing. Like people go there very of often. Yeah, of course. Like, that makes yep, sense. Very often young people go there like just as they leave high school. And it's like, hey, you need to learn to get out in the world being blind. You're going to sit here for nine months and we are going to teach wow. you. Every, yeah. It, nine like, months. We're going to teach you everything you need to know. Everything from this is how you use a cane to this is how you operate power tools. Like this is how you use a power saw while being totally blind. Huh. Um, Andrew Leland, who still has yeah. some vision left, wears like blinders while he's there. He doesn't go for nine months. He goes as a reporter. He goes for a few weeks. Um, oh, lazy. Yeah, um, <laughs> lazy and fake. <laughs> this almost feels like a hey here's this whole world that you don't know exists yeah and here's this whole and maybe start thinking differently about blind people is that basically the thesis and here's this whole pretty freaking admirable world that you don't know exists because it's such a visible disability in other people he says blindness holds this place in our popular imagination more than other disabilities do right from thinking blind people have it's, like we can all close our, we we all blink we all can close our eyes and imagine what that's like do you know what i mean like it is it's imaginable it's like tangible to understand whereas turning off your sense of touch is not really possible <laughs> right. maybe in part too because like as i look at the three of us all three of us wear um glasses mm-hmm. you know Good blindness looking. glasses i know blindness yeah. is not blindness is not kind of an on off much like hearing it's it's kind of a spectrum it's it's a as he discovers it's um it's not as easy as saying you can see or you can't see and that's it so it's the popular imagination where we finish your thought there so it's like it's we can kind of understand it and that makes it different right we can we can imagine it and that makes it different not only that but like we have kind of all these people in history um i i guess like in arts and music you know we think of like famous blind people like blind people who oh, have gone on did you to bring do a like, game no i didn't bring a game i did i did <laughs> kick like around a setup. a little bit but i mean you know these people like you we all know stevie wonder we all know ray charles um the world of literature i was kind of reminded while reading this is full of famously blind people right like john, john milton. milton yeah, yeah. Uh, jorge louis Borges, uh james joyce right lost his vision uh, there was actually a really great story uh nick you'll appreciate this ian you'll really nick, appreciate this better mm-hmm. appreciate this okay. james joyce uh 
towards the end of his life, had, was almost totally blind. By the time he was writing things like Finnegan's Wake, his most famously inaccessible text. Mm-hmm. James mm-hmm. Joyce. Uh-huh. Yeah. James Joyce is famous, Nick, for writing these great, big, inaccessible books. One of the ways he would write is he would speak things aloud and he would have somebody transcribe them, right? Yeah. At a certain point, that poor he was dictating Finnegan's Wake. He was dictating Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> He hears a knock on the door and he says, come in. And the transcriber writes it right in there. Writes, come in, right in there. The transcriber is not going to say to to, to Joyce, "Uh, sir, that doesn't match the narrative that you're structuring. I'm not here to judge. I just write. (laughs) I just write. (laughs) The best part of the story is later on, they're going over the pages that they've done. And um, the transcriber is reading them back to James Joyce. And he gets to that, come in. He says, come in. And James Joyce says, well, one second, hold on. What's that come in? He says, well, you said it, sir. And Joyce thinks about it for a second. And he says, leave it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, it's great. I, I wonder if, so two points. I think this is interesting that this is this, the second, at least, book that Joe has brought of this kind of, this specific kind of thing. Because he brought that one, When Breath Becomes Air, a while ago. Oh, sure. Um, this is what it's like to a, die. A, person narrating their way into a different sort of medical physical state i think that's really interesting and and joe i'm 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 fascinated that those that those attract you the second point i want to make is that like your book and my book too are windows into worlds which might largely be unfamiliar to readers and i wonder if that's one of the things like as we think about too many butlers and our desire to be right on these year-end lists i wonder Mm -hmm. if that's one of the things that that produces this sort of best book of the year What's it like to be a butler? judgment? What's it like to be X or what's this? Um, you, 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 not even you thought you knew you had no idea that this world existed. Yeah. Not only you didn't know, you didn't even know how much you didn't know. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think, I think that process of discovery is like, oh, dang, this yes. is, this is not, not just, okay, now I know what it's like to be blind sort of, but now I know that this is a, a, a community which I had no access to. Hey, Ian. Yeah. What's your book about? Is it also about something we know nothing about? <laughs> I would. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think awareness of this world of the sort of situation in Israel is more widespread than um, our understanding of what it's like to be blind. But I think my experience with with this book was very much like akin to Joe's. Like I generally knew um, kind of the basics Um there, there is an Israeli state. There are Palestinian nationals who were living there before the state was formed, and they're in conflict. That's kind of the basics. That's that's what I knew. Um, this gave me a lot more knowledge. Um, it helps the the author Nathan Thrall is really he's quite an expert. Um, he's written two books about Israeli Palestinian relations in the last decade. So. He knows this stuff and he's a really good researcher and a really good reporter. So um, it it has sort of the flair of authority. Um, he is authoritative. Um, but yeah, it's an introduction to a world that I knew existed, but had basically no no details on. Yeah. And it, is that um is that is that kind of what the the premise of the book is is to to let you understand kind of like the dynamics of the region also when was this wrote written? so this is this this <laughs> wrote this <laughs> when was this wrote 
<laughs> this the book came out in um, October of 2023. Um, oh, it's hot off the presses. His oh, because it came out last year. Yeah, best books oh, 2023. It is. Oh, got it. Okay, I remember what we're doing. It was published on the first of October, and then um, the Hamas attack, which kind of reignited Jesus. the conflict, was six days later. So, wow. talk about timely. That's pretty um, good timing. The the bus accident that he talks about took place in 2012. He didn't publish his essay about this until 2021. And the book doesn't come out until 2023. So, yeah, this is this you is got to make sure that thing's right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what and I mean? I think, That's not a book you rush. This is one of the beautiful books where you you kind of are concerned about how long it is. And then you get to the end. You're like, oh, there's a bunch of a bunch of sources at the end, a bunch of citations. But looking at these citations, there are a ton of personal interviews. He tracked people down. He talked to them. And like that's not in in some societies. I think that's easier than others. Um, I think when you're working in such a divided society where you have two groups of people who by and large don't trust each other. Um, you have to convince, you have to convince Palestinians that you're trustworthy and you have to convince Israelis that you're trustworthy. Um, that's a lot. So I'm not surprised this took him, this took him 12 years, sorry, 11 years to, to write into a book. Um, it's worth it. So, so, okay. How are you going to talk to us about this? Yeah. Book? So, so I think they're, they're kind of the, the structure of this is really, really fascinating. And I, I think, uh, it has a, a narrative core and then it's got kind of questions which he answers. So the narrative core is pretty simple. There is a bus accident. The kids get on the bus. The bus crashes. The door is down. Um, the bus catches on fire. Um, first responders don't show up. The kids get scattered. Some are dead. Some are very badly burned. Some are alive. But they're kindergartners. So... Since there's no first response, people are putting them in cars and driving them to the nearest hospital. Um, it's very sort of chaotic and haphazard. Is this like the inciting event of the entire book or is this just one thing that happens? It's no, it's it's the thing he organized. It's it's the focus that he organizes the whole book around. Got so it. OK, so it's we like- kind of keep coming back to this crash over the course of the book. So he introduces it in the in the prologue and then we get some backstory and then we kind of come back to it. And then he introduces it from a different perspective, from the perspective of the bus driver, from the perspective of the truck that hit the bus that made it fall not fall over from the perspective. We, we get kind of kind of some of the first people from the Israeli side who are on the scene, some of the first people from the Palestinian side who are on the scene. We get the perspective of some of the teachers. We get other parents and one of the things that keeps you hooked is that we focus, we begin with Abed Salama, the, the, the guy from the title, One A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. And he's a father of uh, a little boy, Milad. And Milad is on the bus and Abed doesn't know if Milad lives. Yeah. And mm. we don't know if Milad lives until the very end of the book. Wow, that does sound gripping. And so he doesn't like, and, and I think some of this is journalistic like, you know, keep reading. You I think I have out. a kind of a problem with that, but keep going. But I think, well, I think what it, what it produces in us, the readers, is a sense of the confusion, despair, sure. urgency, urgency that Abed yeah. and other parents who didn't know, because there are a lot of parents who don't know what happened to their kids. Like, is my kid in the morgue? 
is my kid yeah. so badly so Get badly a, here's burned. a here's a taste of what here's the most mild taste right of yeah. what that right. could feel like it's like oh right. does that make you a little uncomfortable i'm sorry yeah <laughs> right and then you you sit with it for the entirety of the book and it's not a long it's not a long book it's shorter than joe's it's i think that the total like um total page count of of story is about 200 pages um so it's not like he's he's keeping you in suspense for a long long time but he kind of kind of holds that um thrall holds that and and as we kind of build towards this conclusion where you know he's going to give you an answer um we he he develops answers to all the questions uh around this crash so the crash happens and we keep coming back to it but then he kind of fills in like how could such a thing happen so like why did the bus crash how did it catch on fire like really 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 fast why was the bus on this super dangerous road on a rainy day at this time of day and why not not on a more safe road with a bunch of kids in it why did it take half an hour for first responders to show up why did the kids who are casualties and the kids who are just kind of lost and need their parents why did they get shipped off to a bunch of different hospitals why did it take parents so long to be able to locate their kids well and and so, I bet from the outside well, I, from the outside we see something like this and we kind of think what went wrong like how right, could this right. have happened but my guess is as he interviews these people that there's pretty reasonable explanations yeah, for a lot yeah. of those things where you're like oh i get why the bus yeah. driver did that yep. thing oh i get why it's on that busy road how does this book age given like the past three months know, four yeah. few months or so if you guys are anything like me you know more about the middle east now than, than ever you ever did yeah yeah because how do you not learn right. about it when you're seeing right. headlines like right. this how does it age compared to like is it truly like hey this is what's really going on is this like a nice <laughs> a nice is this a compliment Useful. to that understanding of of the dynamics does it go further than that and get political in the terms of like the the conflict itself or is it more of just here's stories about the people here and yeah, what they're going yeah, through yeah so i think i think th- these these two comments are, are connected and i think joe just to go back to yours quick a lot of times the word we use is senseless to talk about tragedies this is a senseless tragedy and that is a denial of explanation <laughs> joe uses that all the time <laughs> joe, joe, yeah. we call him we call him senseless joe this is to say to say this is a senseless tragedy is a denial of explanation like well we can't figure it out so might as well stop trying and i, th- I don't think that's that's always the, the the mindset but um to say like oh it's senseless it's it's uh, it's it's random is to deny the possibility that the elements in the world led as you say reasonably and sort of inexorably up to the tragedy i think to your question nick this book is written before hamas launched their rockets and before israel retaliated um and and started bombing gaza um this book is also not focused on gaza so gaza is in the gaza is in the southwest by the um mediterranean sea and um the west bank is uh, around it's in the middle it's 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 around um jerusalem these are both palestinian areas but i think they're different in that gaza is as i understand it pretty much all palestinians for the most part whereas the west bank is thanks to some peace talks in 1995 
islands of Palestinian control, and control here is in kind of big scare quotes, surrounded by a lot by by Israeli jurisdiction. So it's very strange. It there is there is a there is a twenty six foot tall wall. Um, There are checkpoints. I think I think this is not this this does really help understand why Palestinians feel the way they do about what's going on in Gaza. It kind of helps understand why Israelis might feel the way they do about um, the attacks from Hamas. I think it's 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 a really well-timed, really useful compliment. Yes, to use your word to understanding the the New York Times uh, review of it calls it a two-tiered society. And I think that's helpful. That's helpful to understand because Thrall is not trying to be political. He's not political. He kind of tells the things as they are. And he's I can see him trying to avoid really highly colored language, highly, you know, biased language. But when he says things like, you know, there was a fire station a minute and a half away from the cra- the site of the crash in the Israeli part of the city and no one came. That's not political, that's factual. And saying that might have a political effect, but he's not saying they didn't come because they hate the Palestinians. He's saying they didn't come. And... And, and I think I think it's not preachy is what you're saying. Well, it's really not preachy. It's not right, preachy, but it, but but you you read it. And, and I, it might be actual journalism is what you're saying. <laughs> I think it's I think it's trying to report. One of the things I love about this book is how balanced it is. So he he doesn't this. I got into this and I, I kind of was like, oh, boy, here we go. This is going to be Israelis are bad. Time to disagree with this author in some yeah, way. I, right? I thought I was going to get into it and, and, and it was going to be preachy. Israelis are bad. Palestinians are good. They're the victims. But there are a few Israeli first responders who eventually are able to show up. Locals, Israeli locals who are compassionate. And he's like, he's honest about them. He's not trying to paint them as as the villains across the board. And there are breakdowns in Palestinian culture that kind of contributed to this too. And he acknowledges those. He says it's it's not as simple as like all Palestinians are Palestinians are on the same side and just morally upstanding. He's like, there's corruption, there's um, drug addiction, there's violence. Um, there's infighting and that contributes to this. So it's super, super balanced. And I I appreciate that because the more you get into it and the more you kind of feel a sense of outrage about what happened and these kids, these kids are dying. You want there to be a solution, but you don't want it to be unearned. You don't want the answers to be unearned. You want it to be, to be legitimate. And he, he treads that boundary really well. It's so tough because like, you know, you ask me, well, does he frame going blind as a good thing or a bad thing? And it's like, well, I don't, it's it's kind of complex, right? I mean, right. boy, yeah. Israel-Palestine is just like the complex story of yeah. our oh, lifetimes. Yeah. Like yeah. this, you know, when this came up in the news a few months ago and it was for my students, I think the first time that this was ever really on their radar in their life, yeah. you know, my yeah. juniors. And they're like, well, what's happening there? And uh, not that they actually ask that, but, you know, but when you're talking to them about it, it's like, Oh, they've been fighting my entire lifetime. And also like my parents' entire lifetime. Like this is, it's complex. Yeah. I'm 
yeah. I'm looking at a map of of just Israel right now, and I have there's dotted lines all over it that I think delineate probably Palestinian territory is my guess yep. in here. Yep. It is preposterously complex. It's it's labyrinthine. Yeah, la- there you go. Labyrinth. Yeah, and and I think that's one thing that that's part of the reason I think it's so valuable because it's almost like a like a Game of Thrones style where like there are warring factions. There are so many different forces at play here. It's not just like Israel versus Palestine. You got Israel, you got right-wing Israelites, yeah. and you've got left-wing Israelites, and you've got secular Jewish people, and you've got um, very religious, orthodox Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You've got Zionists, and you've got anti-Zionists. Yeah. And then you've got the Palestinians. Some of the Palestinians were like descended from families who were there before 1948, when, when, when the state was established. Those people have a different idea about what it means to be Palestinian than the people who have come since then. You've got people who are more radical, more militaristic. You've got Palestinians who are more political, more um, organizational. You've got Palestinians who work for what's called the PA, the Palestinian Authority. And those people are kind of seen as part of like, like collaborators with Israel, but also kind of in charge of keeping order in Palestine and they're sort of accepted and they're sort of not. This is a, a, an intricate web of forces and it, the history goes back super far. So that's the other part of this that he does. He does. I think I, I have two more things to say. Like there's there's a humanizing part, which I think is important. I'll get to that in a moment. But then there's also the historicizing part. So the kids in this bus are Palestinians and the area that it crashes was controlled by Israel. And a big part of the book focuses on why the first responders like fire and ambulance didn't show up for half an hour and the the deep dive into history going back to 1948 and earlier is that this is a two-tiered society where um if you're a palestinian kid throwing rocks at an armored israeli jeep the israelis will be there right like that really really fast to arrest you and send you to prison if you're a kid whose bus is burning a palestinian kid whose bus is burning they didn't show up um this is a world he kind of he kind of clarifies this world is designed in terms of the way the walls are drawn the way the maps are drawn the walls are built the maps are drawn designed to support and protect israelis and palestinian casualties and hardships don't provoke an urgent response so the history part of it history part is essential but there's also the humanizing part so we get the backstory of this dad whose kid is maybe dead maybe not um we kind of live in this suspense and so it's really hard to dismiss and to generalize when we're in the shoes of the the dad who's uncertain he sees all of the problems in palestinian society he's aware of them but He's also, he's also, he wants, he just wants his kid to live. Like all that other stuff goes out the window. Obviously. It's such a hook. It's such a hook. All that other stuff goes out the window. And not only that, like when you see something like this, like when you put yourself in the shoes of a dad whose kid is in an accident, maybe dead, maybe not. And all of a sudden, like we don't get first responders because of a two-tiered system or a political divide. 
boy, you can really see how the stuff like that might start to extremize. Oh, I don't know. Radicalize. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) radicalize, like piss people off. It's like, oh, you know what? The Israelis, they killed my kid. You know, (laughs) and and I think the, the, the fascinating thing in that regard is that um, some, I mean, he, he does, he's, it's, it's focused on Abed Salama and his kid Milad, but there are other parents. Um, uh, and, uh, I'm not going to spoil, I'm not going to spoil Milad's yeah, Ian, story. We want to know, is the kid okay? That's what we want to know. Ian. But other parents, I, I will spoil hard. other parents whose kids definitively die. Um, uh, their response, he does kind of that, like after afterwards, like here's how they ended up. Their response sometimes is anger, sometimes it's brokenness. So, as a chronicle of trauma, um, this is this is just as harrowing. Like he narrates one woman whose family fell apart; that her kid survived. He was badly burned, but she was the one who decided to send her kid on the bus that day, and so the whole her husband's family blames her for that, and her life falls apart. She lives in misery. Her husband becomes abusive. Um, things this book things, sounds brutal it is really it's really hard to read and the he's not he's not at all graphic he's not he's not gratuitous about the about the 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 violence the the death and the this the meaning. you don't need to be the words you the, don't the, the events speak for themselves you don't they need do. to your it's imagination not, it, is always worse it's not easy to read and i think i think we at some level i talked about how he's he's trying to like trying to make sense of what we call senseless. I think calling it senseless is preferable because once you start to realize all of the reasons, the legitimate things that, that, that the forces that produce this, yeah, a functional society, if this society had been functional, if, if these two cultures had been better integrated, if it were not two tiered, this might not have happened. Um, and that's, that's horrifying to think about. So that the sort of abstract conceptual, lesson is almost as bad as the burned bodies of children. Ooh. Uh, pretty easy one today. Ian, you lose that. Well, welcome, to <laughs> oh, welcome to Tiffany's. Welcome to Tiffany's. Okay. I just couldn't. Ian, that's <laughs> just difficult. I think yeah. I'm good. I know Tiffany. My imagination is so good, Ian, that I don't need to read your book. Do you want to share something good about <laughs> Ian? Yes. Ian Joe, welcome to Tiffany's the Safe yes. Place. Yes. Yes. Joe, yeah. what don't you like about your book? Yeah, my book is very interesting, right? Like intellectually, my book is very, very interesting. I thought I had a hard time engaging with it. And it's hard to maybe say the difference between those two, but like I, it was, it, it taught me a lot of stuff that I didn't know about the history of blindness. I did sympathize with him and his situation, but ultimately maybe it was like too dispersed or something like that. I had a hard time reading this as a narrative. It kind of felt like a book that was like, Hey, let me tell you about an interesting, a bunch of interesting stuff about going blind. And it just ultimately was, it, it was good. Good. Not great. List of facts. Yeah. At times. Yeah. It felt very facty at times. Little facty. Ian, was yours a little facty? Your sounds like the opposite of facty. It sounds like My, extremely no. personal. <laughs> Um, I would say that 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 my Tiffany's is a writing related one. So 
Thrall is obviously an experienced journalist. Too many run-ons. A good writer? No. Um, <laughs> guy can't use a semicolon to save his life. Sometimes I, t- I, 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 sometimes I tell my club. students. Okay. Sometimes I tell my students, you guys need to make your the connections that are implicit in your mind explicit to your readers. Mm, yeah, so that's tough. Thrall can, see, Thrall can see the web. And Thrall knows this society really well. And so he moves from like this force and this historical element and this cultural thing to kind of a, a bit of a, a whiplash to to this one. And it's not always at first yeah. apparent how they all connect. By the end, he does a good job tying it all together. But you got to trust him. Uh, this is an incredible book. I think oh, it, he's it, saying it, nice, nice things about it. I appreciate it quite break. a bit and okay. I learned a lot. That's enough. But, Ian. More semicolons. We got it. <laughs> but. but there needed there needs you have to trust him you have okay. to, to to get to like trust fall <laughs> he trusts him yeah it really is that that he's not just giving you a scattershot approach of a bunch of different bad things that are happening mm-hmm. they're all connected ian i think your book would be really interesting i just uh if i have to make the choice for me i i don't need to read these stories i i know enough about the conflict to know that it's horrific ian you lose <laughs> I would okay. Just just a, just a quick. Just I, I'm I'm not lobbying. I understand. Joe's mm-hmm. book sounds so much more fun. I would say that. <laughs> Is that how you describe your book, Joe? Relatively fun? speaking. Laugh relatively riot. speaking. Man, I would hey, guess say, what? If these are the best books of last year, last year sucked. I would <laughs> I would say that I would say that this book, kind of apart from the whole bus accident angle, um gave me a much much clearer sense of what it's like to live in israel oh well then joe you lose then joe you lose no wait what (laughs) congratulations ian you won (laughs) joe tell the listeners what to do (laughs) i'm happy to um litheads congratulations to ian i guess in a sunny one today yeah um, lit heads. I don't like this. <laughs> well, then you lose. Okay. <laughs> All right. Lit heads, if you want to support the Wait, show, what are you doing, Joe? It's my turn. <sighs> no, he can. What's, yeah. who's got okay. a better quote? Probably Ian, Joe, I would think. Pro- probably Ian. I have a quote about being a leader. Although it might be a run on. <laughs> I have a quote about, um, like him being a leader his whole life and then like losing his eyesight and having to deal with like what that means. Oh, that sounds compelling. Yeah. Ian, you lose. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Lidheads. Uh we we appreciate you. Um I know it's not the quite the new year anymore, but this is our first recorded episode of the new year. Happy New Year to you and we're mm. excited to spend another year uh once a week coming at you with uh book club meets fight club. Um make yourself a New Year's resolution this year. Tell at least 77,000 bookish friends. Wow. I'm sure we all have that many. Yes. Tell at least tell at least five bookish friends uh, about our podcast. This is the way that we get our silly voices to new ears is by that organic growth. Plus TikTok. But also TikTok. Yes, you can follow us. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on all the social media uh, that, uh, that matters and some of the ones that don't. Um, you can tell your bookish friends about our podcast you can also uh, be involved in the podcast by requesting books and or themes at our website, www.tweenvogue.com. We love you, Litheads. Bye-bye. Here, he talks about um, his relationship with 
reading. Yeah, reading's a huge Ooh. part of his life. Uh, he says, but in between writing the first and second drafts of this book, my eyes have gotten weaker, and now I leave the screen reader on all the time. The anxiety of losing my own voice to the computers has given way to the relief that I don't have to strain and stretch so much to see. I'm like a guy who could walk haltingly on his own if he had to, but it's easier to use the crutches. I find myself looking away from the screen more and more, resting my eyes as I listen back to a paragraph I've just written. If I suddenly lost all of my residual vision tomorrow, I'd know I'd be overwhelmed and the grieving process I've begun would be painfully accelerated but I also know I'd be able to finish my work. I'm still getting used to certain quirks. My braille display doesn't always show me the paragraph breaks, and when I'm speed listening to a book, the reader burns through the ends of chapters and onto the next without stopping. I've had to rewind, slow down, and artificially recreate the resonant pause that the blank space on the page naturally offers a sighted reader. But while I'm losing print, I'm not losing literature itself, which exceeds the eyes. The other day, with my phone screen reader on, I was reading the newspaper at a pretty furious clip. I'd run across the obituary of Ben McFall, the legendary New York City bookseller who worked at the Strand for 43 years. The piece ended up by describing McFall's deep commitment to his work, even after the pandemic and his failing health had forced him into Strand's corporate office, away from the line of friends and fans who would wait next to his desk amid the stacks to get personal recommendations or just talk books. The obituary ended. Mr. McFall, who was so attached to his strand name tag that he sometimes wore it around his apartment, chose to keep it on even though he no longer spoke to customers. It read, Benjamin, ask me. I had the speech turned up so fast that these last two paragraphs, which didn't even register then as paragraphs since the babbling screen reader ignored the line break, took only a few seconds to read, and yet I still felt tears burst out of my eyes at that final image of McFall's commitment not just to the pleasure of solitary reading, but to the community of readers who sustained him to the very end. My response felt like a sign that however awkward it might feel to read this way, I still felt the power of that community. I'm still a reader. 